0: This is Solve It For Kids.
1: Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the dean of all things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It For Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their job using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff
0: Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Speaking of listeners, if you are listening to this podcast, I guarantee this is a topic you are going to want to listen to.
1: Absolutely. So what topic are we going to be talking about today? The best. Of launching a rocket. Start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The best of launching rockets! Oh yes. I think we've probably had a lot of people on the show that could talk about this topic, right, Jeff? We have! So who are you gonna hear from in these clips? We have episode 171, How Do You Get Ready for a Launch with Natalie Quintero. Episode 152, How Do You Move a Rocket? With Dan Zapata. And finally, episode 185, with What's It Like to Blast Off in a Rocket? With astronaut, Nicole Stott. These are gonna be great clips to listen to. We hope you enjoy them.
2: How do you get a rocket ready to launch?
1: You get a rocket ready for launch? Ooh, I think this is a topic we haven't yet covered, but we are going to learn so much about. Who is our guest today, Jeff?
0: Our guest today is the wonderful Natalie Quintero, and she currently works for Boeing on their SLS program as the core stage launch operations lead.
3: Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I'm super excited to be here
1: with you today. Well, we are super excited to have you here. This yes. is going to be such a fun discussion. But I like to ask for our young listeners out there, did you always know that you wanted to work with Rockets even when you were a kid? Actually, no. I <laughs> Okay. We get that a lot, actually. So what yeah. did you want to do? So when I was a little kid,
3: I first wanted to be a pilot, actually. I had the um, opportunity that my dad was a pilot himself. So I had that role model in my life early in my, you know, and I remember like asking for Christmas one day, the Barbie pilot. Uh, (laughs) Oh, Yeah, I remember her in the the late 90s. And well, now with the (laughs) Barbie movie coming up, which is pretty cool. I remember having that and wishing to be a pilot and flying was like one of the the first things that I thought I was going to do, but later in high school, and I do it in my high school in Venezuela, actually, I came to the U.S. to go to college. Okay. I had, you know, maybe what did I like? I really like science, like chemistry, myth, physics, math classes. Right. I really took one design class and like a drafting that oh. kind of opened my eyes to oh. what engineering could be. Wow! So I started looking into okay, maybe engineering could be an option. My mom is an industrial engineer, but is oh. she stopped working when I was born? So I never really saw her in the engineer right. role, the mother gotcha. role. She worked ten years in the industry before she had me. So I really never saw like an engineer really close to me or my surroundings to say, okay, yeah, this is what an engineer does. So great. Is there something that combines aviation with engineering? And I ended up discovering something called aerospace engineering. So <laughs> I started researching about that. And in Venezuela, they don't have that major in any of the universities that are there. So I started looking outside, you know, maybe Europe or the U.S. And I stumbled upon Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Okay. Yes. Very known for aviation in general, but also Absolutely. engineering. And I was like, okay, I paid a visit to the campus one before, like, it was like my senior year. And I was like, okay, this is where I want to go. And I went to the Daytona Beach campus. They have two campuses, one in Prescott, Arizona, and one here in Daytona right. Beach. Florida. And I, I loved it. Like, I loved the campus, the people, the fact that everybody was like, so aviation space oriented Right. I did start at college when the shuttle program ended, so I never got to see a shuttle. Oh, um, wow. I did my ride, really? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But going to campus and just being surrounded about that, it really opened my eyes into not just aviation, which is what I was familiar with, like airplanes, like from having an airport. by, right. like the International Airport in Caracas. but seeing like oh a space and I remember seeing one of the first launches rocket launches was a night launch it was when SpaceX was doing their dragon demo oh wow and then I saw ULA launch and I was like wow interesting and (laughs) then I would always go to Kennedy Space Center you know to visit and to geek about it yeah life led me to Kennedy Space Center actually to do you know real work plus <laughs> <With the last laughs> program. So that's kind of like how I ended up working on rockets, but yeah, wow. like, life has its mysteries to work around it. So. Wow. I love <laughs> how you fun. just
0: put that life has its mysteries in figuring that out. One thing you mentioned that I have never heard before. I've heard lots of folks say, and especially on the podcast that they come to engineering, not in a direct route, something else kind of happens. I have never heard anybody sort of come to it through a drafting class. Mm -hmm. Was there something that happened in that drafting class? Was there a project you were working on that you were designing something that sort of led you towards engineering?
3: Yeah. So in the drafting class, we had to do kind of like schematics of like, well, it was houses. Right. Okay the like the class had and I was like it's it was more like architecture if you think about it a little yeah, bit. All right. But I was like, oh that's cool. You know, kind of designing the well in this case the, the layout of what a house could be. And then what is like, you know, the materials that it needs to be. And I was like, okay, you know, you you can play a role into design. Even though I don't do design engineering as my current role, I do operations, but I think in general, though, even in whatever phase you might be in an engineering project, having that creativity, I think it pains out, you know, through other disciplines within the engineering world. And engineering is really big. You know, you're yes. studying aerospace engineering, you can be doing millions of things. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, my classmates, we all did the same classes and we all do different things like <laughs> right. <laughs> you can touch. So I think and that's one of the values of like doing internships too for students when they get to that point and I actually have learned that some high school students even have internships now like NASA has that opportunity wow companies do that as well and that's awesome because that is really how you engage and see oh look what I can do or maybe I didn't know that because you can touch everything in a classroom right you're doing a degree it's impossible so yeah
0: okay
1: yeah that's amazing my son is a material science engineer but there's so many different ways that he can take that same thing as as you were saying so now you work for boeing which is really cool and you get to work on the sls so tell us a little bit about what you do now Right. So I've
3: been working with the SLS program over now, eight years now, which is kind of crazy to think about because uh, (laughs) I started with Boeing as an intern in their Boeing Commercial Airplanes Division up in Everett, Washington. Wow. I made my transition into space on the last summer before graduating college. One of the reasons I wanted to work is obviously, oh, space looks cool. I did actually a project with Johnson Space Center as a student on the Vomit Comet. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They, they had a whole program for like college students called the Reduced Microgravity Flight Program. And basically universities across the country would compete to get their experiments to fly on board the Vomit Comet. I did that in 2014 with a joint team between Duke University and Embry-Riddle. Wow. And, and I think that was the first time where I was like, wow, this feels like I'm an astronaut and i <laughs> <boom, laughs> so cool ah. in space. Because when we went on the flight and the airplane did parabolas and you're literally floating for like a couple seconds, obviously, but it just feels surreal because you feel like you're in a pool, but there's no water sustaining you up in right. the air. Your body's trying to figure out what is happening. And I remember the first parabola, everybody, all the students were so excited about, you know, just the feeling. And then it was like, okay, everybody get to your experiments, you know,
1: we, we do <laughs> You can't um, just fly around. So, no, so I do no, have no, to no, ask, no, did, joy. Right. Did, did you throw up on this and get sick or were you I one of those lucky people? Oh my gosh. All
3: right. So Good for so you nice.
1: Yeah, they did four flights
3: and my flight with the, with the people we were did not vomit, but the other ones at least one or two
1: people did. Yeah,
3: I can imagine. Yeah, well, but It does get the name right. The vomit comes.
1: Exactly, exactly. But what a really unique experience that had to be.
3: Yes. And that actually was the one that I was like, wow, like it would be really cool to work in space. And so as I was interning, I did two internships in Boeing commercial airplanes. And I was looking to see, well, what other opportunities are there for space? Well, Boeing has a big portfolio in space, not just oh, yes. rocket, but they, you know, we do satellites we have Starliner, other projects. Right. We are involved. And at the time, I was looking to go to California because that's where our Satellite Development Center is at. But there was no opportunities at the time. So life led me to SLS, really, um, <laughs> through opportunities through networking, really. And also, I didn't want to live in the North because I'm from South America. (laughs) (laughs) So it would have been really nice to stay in the lower part of the country. And so, yeah, I got the opportunity to go work in the SLS program on my last internship before graduating college in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center. And I've been there ever since. Wow. Uh, My career has been working on Artemis 1, which we launched last year. Yes. Yay! Yeah. And now I'm working on Artemis 2 which is gonna be the first, you know, manned mission, and I'm super excited about that.
2: How do you move a rocket?
1: How do you move a rocket? So believe it or not, this episode for me is so exciting because I remember learning all about this as a kid. So who is our guest today, Jeff?
0: Our guest today is the incredible Dan Zapata. He is a crawler systems engineer at Jacobs
4: working at Kennedy Space Center.
1: Welcome to the show, Dan.
4: Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jeffrey. It's great to be here. Great to be on the show with you guys.
1: We are so excited to have you. We are going to talk about one. I mean, there's so much about the space program that is amazing, but I love learning about the crawler. And I told this story before but I'm going to tell it on air. So the very first time I came to Kennedy Space Center with my parents back in 1980, yes kids do the math. <laughs> my mom was so excited when we took the tour in the back and there was the crawler. My mom was like, "Do you know that and she starts listing all of the what it does, how fast it goes, and what That's it what carries." I was,
0: talking about.
1: I was like, I didn't realize my mom was such a space geek. <laughs> <laughs> But my question to you, Dan, is since that was my childhood experience, did you have a childhood experience with space that kind of made you want to go into this and be the one who kind of drives the crawler?
4: So, yeah, a uh, funny story. I, your parents taking you to KSC. My parents actually took me to KSC, uh, ah. unfortunately, I was very young. I was probably two, three years old, so I don't remember it exactly. In terms of like, did I ever want to be part of the space program? Actually, not really. It never oh. was okay. I mean, something I, I sought after. Ever since I was a very young kid, I was very interested in math and science. Oh,
1: um, okay.
4: I, I knew I knew engineering was was going to be what I wanted my career to be.
1: Okay, so,
4: okay. I was always very curious. I took things apart. I put things together. I made <laughs> little race car race waste using cardboard, paper. I got cardboard boxes. And nice, my that's parents would get a little upset because how messy things got. I build a lot of connects, Legos, a lot of those yep. things.
0: Yeah, okay, that's awesome. So, while you were in school, were you expecting to grow up to be the guy that builds something really big and cool, like that type of engineer?
4: I'm not sure if I wanted to actually build something, but I, I definitely wanted to be part of the design of a okay uh, piece of equipment. I think at a young age, that's what I was looking to do.
1: Well, that's kind of what you do. So were you one of the ones with the Legos where you you didn't always follow the directions and you kind of built your own Lego stuff? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) There you go. There you go. You were designing even at a young age. That's awesome.
0: Okay. So we can't waste a whole lot of time. We have to talk. Can you tell us what your current job title is and what exactly that means?
4: Right. So I am a systems engineer for the crawler transporter group. Wow. Um, okay. Specifically electrical systems. My degree is in electrical engineering. And okay. uh, I work for Jacobs, which is the prime contractor for the exploration ground systems here in NASA. And in layman's terms, that means we receive a lot of the flight hardware and our job is to integrate the flight hardware, put it all together, and have it ready to go out for launch. What my group does specifically is we transport articles of flight hardware, if it's booster segments, if it's the Orion capsule, they will have astronauts in wow. it. Wow. Or if it's the entire assembly, which is the center of the rocket, the booster segments on the sides, the Orion capsule on top, that all sits on top of what's called a mobile launcher. Right. And okay. the mobile launcher is moved by the crawler transporter, crawler transporter number two, which has been modified to sustain the extra weight. Yeah, of all of Artemis.
1: So, are you the one that drives the crawler?
4: So, occasionally, yes, I do drive the crawler. Oh crowder. my gosh!
1: <laughs> what is that like? So, of course, Jeff and I are all excited. But for our listeners, can you tell us, like, how fast does
4: this go? Right? So, yeah, the crawler is called Crawler for a reason. It's not <laughs> a course, you know? It tops out at roughly one mile an hour. Is oh, it's wow. top speed. Okay. And of course you have to go slower for turns for going over roadways, or okay. Okay. Yeah. the crawler itself can vary in speed, anywhere between zero point, you know, zero one miles an hour to one mile an hour, depending on what wow. we're doing. And driving okay. the
0: crawler,
4: driving the crawler is—I know you guys ever had a building and just try to put a steering wheel on it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. It's one hundred thirty-one feet long. It's one hundred fourteen feet wide, and it varies in height between wow. 20 and 26 feet. So oh it really is like you're moving the, the whole entire facility. And it's so big that the driver alone can't do it themselves. They have people oh. on the ground as observers. Right. And they, okay. you know, watch the crawler, your blind spots, you know, your blind spots are huge, you know? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I would <was laughs> think.
1: yeah. I drive uh, a minivan and I know that I have little tiny blind <laughs> spots. Blind spots. I can imagine what you have on a crawler.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. So during the first launch attempt for Artemis, I was lucky enough to get a tour and my group went right up next to the crawler. So I was able to get super close to it. We were able Mm -hmm. to touch it, take pictures of it, but we weren't able to get on it. So one question I still have, is it a cockpit? Is it, does it look like the inside of a car? When you get into drive, is it a steering wheel? Is it more like flight controls? What's happening in there?
4: (laughs) So there are a few different compartments on the crawler, and to get on top of the crawler, you walk up what's called a catwalk, okay. Okay. and the catwalk um, circumvents the whole outside of the chassis. Wow, and okay. Through the catwalk, you have access to different rooms. You have the engine rooms, which hold you know, your big Alco and Cummins engines. You have pump sets that, wow. that move fluids around. Another room is the control room, which is kind of the brains of the operation. Right. Not, okay. Not, not to mention the hardware brains, but also the, the engineering people are, are sit there, including myself at times. <laughs> okay. And they have test conductor who we call uh, GBCT, who runs the whole operation, tells their mechanics or electricians when they have, goes to start different uh, equipment. And then on each corner, caddy corner, so one end will have one cab. The other end on the opposite okay. side makes we'll have another cab. And the cab okay. is similar on the outside to, I guess, a not so much an airplane, but like a like a boat. Okay. Kind of a, okay. Yeah, the exterior is like a like a boat. And the wheel is very small. The wheel is more or less the size of a golf cart. You know, it's oh, oh wow, oh, wow. Six, eight inches in diameter. It's okay. very small. So, but because it's so small, it's It's not intended like your car would be. Like when you turn on your car, it happens right away. Right. On the crawler, when you turn the wheel, it sends commands to the computer system that interprets those commands and turns what's called the trucks on the ground. Right. And that turns the, the crawler itself. So there's a bit of a delay when you do any type of steering. Okay.
1: So how much weight can the crawler handle? Because this is the same crawler that also took space shuttles out, correct?
4: Yeah, it took space shuttles. It took Saturn V rockets. It's wow. taken pretty much any major large rocket from, from the Saturn V Apollo era through shuttle and now through uh, the Artemis program. Wow. And I'd like to note there are actually two crawlers. We have crawler transporter uh, one okay. and crawler transporter number two. And in the last seven or eight years, there was a... Big uh, modifications done on Crawler Transporter 2 to upgrade its uh, load carrying capacity from approximately 12, 12 and a half million pounds when it was was houses load weight to about 18, 18 and a half million pounds for the Arden program. Whoa. Wow. 18 and
0: uh, a half. 18 and a half
1: million pounds. I mean, that is literally like driving a huge building.
4: (laughs) Oh, yeah. The mobile launcher itself has a has a very tall tower over 300 feet, not to mention the rocket that sits next to the tower. So we are moving a building. Wow. A building that so to hold 18 and a
0: half million pounds, how heavy is the crawler itself?
4: So the crawler itself, it's lost some weight, but it's also gained <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> the crawler itself is around 6.6 million pounds right now. What? what? Is, is it, it like, like
1: to blast, like blast off in a rocket ship? What's it like to blast off in a rocket? I think we have a pretty amazing guest for our listeners today, Jeff. Don't we? Who is she? I do agree. If you are not
0: already a fan, after this episode, you will be. Today we have the one and only astronaut, Nicole Stott, artist, author, aquanaut, and former NASA astronaut with more than 100 days in space. Welcome to the show, Nicole.
2: Thank you. I need you guys to introduce me all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to King
0: Supers. This is.
1: You've done some amazing, amazing things. And, you know, we always like to start out, since we have some young listeners, when you were a kid, did you always want to go to
2: space? You know, I think I did, but I didn't think about it like it was something that was real, right? Ah. I mean, it was really, it was, I mean, real, like that could be real for me, right? Right. Right. I mean, I know, you know, you guys probably can't believe that I'm old enough to have watched that first moon landing, but I did. And I have vivid (laughs) memory, you know, in front of the black and white TV with my family and a grilled cheese sandwich or something watching this go on. And I think even at six or seven, you realize that you know, holy moly, people walking on the moon is pretty yes. extraordinary, right? Yeah. Yes. And so it was exciting for me and all of that. And I thought, man, that would be really cool. But it didn't seem like, here's what I'm super thankful for to my parents and so many others in my life that nobody ever said, oh, Nikki you can't do that. You know, yes. you can't fly in space. You can't yes. be an astronaut. Nobody ever did that. I just kind of laid it on myself that, well, wow, that seems like something other special people get to do, you know? Right. And even right. if I got older, I felt that way. And so very thankful right. for mentors in my life and people that encouraged me once I started questioning it. But yeah. man, I'll tell you, if I could go back in time, maybe I would have just like been from the from day one, you know, Now that I know how awesome it
1: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. That's a great way to start. Is there one inflection point back in the day that you can remember that was sort of that, okay, that's it. I'm going for it.
2: So I studied aeronautical engineering in school because, I mean, when I was in high school, I didn't even really get ready to graduate. I really didn't even know if I was going to go to college. And I saw, I mean, I had no big plan, you know, and right. I'm old. So back in that day, you know, there wasn't this pressure like there was on kids now, like the moment yes. they enter college, they need to have a resume. And no, yes. I mean, I don't know if I'd be sitting here with you if that had been what was required back then. But, you know, I loved flying, wanting to know how things fly. So I studied aeronautical engineering That's and I fun. did that right up the road from the Kennedy Space Center. And I grew up in Florida where, you know, things fly to space from. And, you know, so I was excited about that in general. My uncle worked at the space agency over at Kennedy Space Center. And so I got a little insight to what was happening with the space shuttle program and that kind of thing. And while I was at college, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, if you want to know how airplanes fly. Why would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? And exactly. then, I, yeah, I mean, what, really, seriously, right? why would you not? <laughs> and the shuttle program was getting up and running. And, and then I'll stop rambling. But long story short, when I graduated from college, I was very fortunate to get a job at NASA at the Kennedy Space Center as an engineer on the space shuttle program you know we were getting back to flight after challenger and all this whole big group of young engineers came in and it was during that time probably while working on the shuttle and station projects and i got to see astronauts coming through preparing for their flights right Right. i was helping make these vehicles put them you know get them ready for them to fly with this really awesome group of people and i started thinking you know seeing i'm like man you know. 99.9% 99.9% of an astronaut's job, sadly to astronauts, is not flying in space. It's <laughs> no, the right? Yes.
1: And yes. then,
2: it's so true, you know, yeah. and then best I could tell, the majority of it was a lot like what I was already doing as a NASA engineer. Uh, and so- uh, okay. You know, so I started thinking. Well, maybe I could consider this, and that's when I reached out to a couple people that I considered to be mentors. You know, people who taught me lessons like this. one. I'll show you my little guy that I've had on my desk ever since this has happened. So, my friend Jay Honeycutt, who taught all of us young engineers to approach every problem with, you know, the idea first of all that there is a solution to the problem, but also with the "here's how we can, not why we can't" approach to oh, things. Oh, I like that. And all of these things that just started getting embedded in me and seeing what astronauts do i'm like you know maybe i should talk to them and see if this is something i should pursue and you know they did exactly i think what my like spirit needed which was just to be somebody to say okay nicole if you want to do this you got to pick up the pen and fill out the application right you it's know like, it's like they gave me permission to do the one thing in the whole process that <laughs> i had
0: that you had to yeah,
2: yeah you know and it wasn't going to cost me anything it wasn't going to hurt you know, I could still think that maybe they won't pick me and now all the other special people get to do this. But I at least was, you, you know, putting you myself out there. Yeah. And so you thankful connected for that. So
0: many different small dots, so many different small pieces of the puzzle from the aeronautical engineering because you like the flying and then yeah. your uncle gave you a little bit of a glimpse into what NASA happened and you happened to go to college close. And there's a lot of little breadcrumbs along the way that led to this. That was cool.
2: Yeah, and I think that, you know, I like that you mentioned that, you know, that I liked flying. I think that's a big deal, you know, and maybe it was better ah. for me not to be in that position of from the time I saw humans walking on the moon yes. that it was like life was going to be over unless I became an astronaut. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> and, and I've, I, I mean, honestly, I've met people who are so wrapped up yes. in becoming an astronaut that they, aren't maybe appreciating the awesomeness of what they're experiencing along the way. And I can tell you, having been a person sitting on the other side of the table now, you know, for the selection process, we are looking for people that are are absolutely excited about the work they're doing, that are motivated to pursue what they're curious about, right? They want to learn more about it. They're looking at the, you know, the awe and wonder in the world around them, and they're pulling that into their lives and the way they create things, the way they explore just through what they're studying at school or hobbies that they have or ultimately the jobs that they do. And then all of that feeds so, I just, just such, such a cool way into making somebody that you'd want to pick to be an astronaut, that you'd want to spend an extended exactly. period of time on yeah. in a relatively I- confined space with, you know, beyond just what they studied. And, you know, it's pretty cool to see how that whole process goes down. And I think it goes back to what you guys just said. It's about that curiosity. It's about that wonder and really exploring that in a way that's meaningful to you. And then that's how you end up giving back the most to the world around you, too.
1: Exactly. And and that makes a lot of sense. And that's what, you know, I'm sure you say all this to the students that you talk to. I say that when I talk to them as well. Just be curious and notice yeah. the world around you. Explore. That's what makes everything exciting. Then everything else that you learn, you get, you know, really interested in and it kind of just moves along. But I'm really curious. So after you went through this whole journey, what was it like the very first time when you blasted off into space? Were you excited, nervous? No,
2: no, I wasn't excited at all, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't think you can really explain the level of excitement that's going on inside you. I mean, this is, it's like human beings. We have to respond to all this, right? right? You have to respond to everything. I mean, just the emotional side of it, the physical side of it everything. And once you're strapped into that seat to launch, it's like, it's all, you know, finally coming together. These years of training, you know, the support from your family and friends, all of it is kind of just churning there. Wow! And, but I think it's an excitement for good, right? It's like adrenaline for good, you know? And I don't remember being afraid, like afraid for me, because I think me and my crewmates, we had trained you know, as much as you humanly possibly can to take care of whatever can humanly possibly be taken care of, (laughs) you know, if something goes wrong, too.
0: Not only a fascinating topic about launching rockets, but can you think of three more fascinating people that you wouldn't want to talk to them about their jobs even longer? Natalie, Dan, and Nicole, wow! What a great trio we just had, Jen.
1: Absolutely. And, I mean, no, I can't think of anybody better than that. (laughs) And we covered everything from how to build the rocket, to move it, to blast off in it. I mean, this is fantastic. (laughs) So if you want to listen to the entire episode of each of these make sure you go to SolveItForKids.com or you can catch us on Spotify or iTunes or any place that you listen to your podcast and we hope you have tons of fun listening and learning about launching rockets.
0: Jen and Jeff are nearing the end of our break and if you don't think we listen to our own episodes think again (laughs) because we will be listening to some of our favorite episodes before we come back live next week. You'll hear us then on Solve It It For Kids.
2: Kids.